Welcome to the House of Lee NYC. Come on in, meet regular folks doing interesting things, and get tips for resourceful living. Hi, I'm Lee. Thank you for stopping by. In today's show, we'll pick up where we left off in Central Park for part two with L.A. Perkel, certified wine sommelier and private wine curator. We'll talk about champagne, the one set of wine glasses you should buy, and L.A. will tell us which wine is best purchased with a screw top, right? <laughs> I know! We'll also review the proper yet simple method of recorking a bottle of wine. L.A. will also share with us when it's best to call upon a wine consultant and the benefits of doing so. You know, she truly is a walking encyclopedia for wine. I don't know if you've gotten that, but I'm just reiterating it because I'm, I'm fascinated by her knowledge. If you remember from last week's part one, L.A. was telling us about a wine pairing. So let's pick up there as she finishes giving her recommendations for wines to have with sushi. What else could be? I said Gruner, right? Um, certainly anything sparkling. I mean, I would do champagne all day, every day. <laughs> what is a good champagne sushi. to, to uh, try? For me, I love Ruinart. Um, Ruinart for me is a go-to um, Bollinger is another one, but you know when you speak of real champagne, you really will have to spend in the fifty, sixty dollar range. Um, but I've actually been lately drinking a Cremant. Cremant is a style of sparkling that is made in the traditional method of champagne, and Cremant can come from. Burgundy, Alsace, uh, Loire Valley are some of the areas that make really, really amazing Cremant. And these wines almost taste like champagne and you can get some really, really terrific ones for about 20 or 25. So, you know, for every day, like weekly drinking <laughs> yes. um, and you don't want to spend the 50 sure, or the $60, I dollars, yeah. Cremant, I think, is, is a wonderful alternative. And what's a traditional way of making champagne that you mentioned just a moment so, ago? So, method traditionnel, as they say, is um, it, it basically describes the the way that that vit, that the carbon dioxide is dissolved in champagne, right? So that secondary fermentation that creates the bubbles in the champagne happens in the individual bottle that the wines are sold in, as opposed to say a Prosecco, which is typically made, it, the secondary fermentation that creates the bubbles is created in a tank. Oh. Um, um, of course, under pressure to preserve the uh, CO2. And then, you know, when the U.S. market says, I want a, you know, thousand cases of Prosecco, then the winemaker goes into the winery, you know, bottles the Prosecco, um, and then ships it. So bottles it under pressure to preserve the CO2. So it's less process driven, but it also doesn't have the, um, the complexity that can only come from producing a champagne in that individual bottle. Because truly what happens with champagne is, so to create the bubble, you put a little bit of you know, the, the sugar right mm -hmm. so then you have the yeast in the bottle and you have the added sugar in the bottle you cork it and then fermentation again happens so that's the secondary fermentation because there's a yeast that's starting to you know consume that sugar and 
CO2 is a byproduct of that fermentation and because it's sealed, the CO2 stays in the bottle. And that contact, so after a while, the yeast you know, consumes all the sugar in that bottle and then they start to die off. And a basic champagne has to be aged for about 18 months in bottle before it's released to the market. So that contact between the juice and the dead yeast cells create that complexity that of course doesn't happen in a tank. And I can get that for $20? No, that's uh, uh, that's champagne champagne. All right, so uh, speaking of champagne, I came across some information about uh, dealing with champagne and something about sticking your finger in it for the bubbles or something after you pour it. Do you know anything about that? No. Where, yes, it's, it's, for what? Uh, it said something about uh, to serve champagne. Uh, first of all, I ran across something that said you, you're supposed to serve champagne uh, in a different way than wine, and that something about helping the bubbles. You put your finger in the glass. Helping the bubbles to do what? Yeah, exa- I don't know. <laughs> I don't so know. don't I mean, put your you fingers imagine? in the champagne, people. So what happens in a restaurant if I serve the champagne and then let me just stick my finger in that know. glass? I don't know. I don't you know. I don't know. Ew. <laughs> so let's segue into glassware. Okay. So I've been to LA's house and her glasses are gorgeous. Tell us about this. I don't know about gorgeous, but I have, you know, the standard wine glassware. I have a white wine glassware, which has more of a tapered top that I use for lighter whites. Um, it just concentrates the aromatics. More The lighter whites tend to have a much more... Um, subdued aromatics and so by tapering off the top it sort of concentrates the aromas that allows me to smell a little bit more my eyes are beginning to glaze over and then i have a burgundy glass which is the more how do i know bulbous is that yeah like the more rounded bigger um wine glasses that i like to use for wines from Pinot Noir and maybe Grenache and that sort of of wines and then I have what you call the Bordeaux glassware which is another red wine glass that's also like a larger wine glass that I typically reserve for other reds like a Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Malbec, that type of stuff. And so for someone who is not a wine expert and maybe only has room for a set of six or eight wine glasses, what shape or what tips do you have to buy a set of wine glasses? I'd go, if you're going for standard, I like, uh, most of the time we drink young wines at home, I think. And I say that because when you walk into a random wine shop, that's what you see. So therefore that's what most people buy. When I say young wines, these are wines that are fairly newly released, either the current vintage, you know, like maybe 2015 for a lot of Bordeaux, for instance, a lot of Cabernet Sauvignons in the 2015s, as opposed to older stuff, like the 2000s, um, probably, you know, um, Italian reds from the 90s, that type of stuff. That's not something that you would typically find in a random neighborhood wine shop. And this is 
related to the glassware options because knowing that it's typically young wines that you drink, so you want glassware that would emphasize the fruit, the freshness of the wines. So I like bigger glasses that allow me to to smell it and allow more room, more surface area for all those aromatics to come through. So Bordeaux you, glassware is what I would And buy. is that is that what is mentioned on the box of glasses? Usually it says Bordeaux. Okay. Yeah. So we should avoid the skinny small wine glasses. Is that what you're saying? I mean if you drink a lot of sparkling wines, um, you know, Proseccos, Pinot Grigios, Sauvignon Blanc, that's an ideal glassware for that for that particular style of wine. Okay. I would like to mention that I had a very expensive set of German wine glasses, and then I proceeded to break them over the course of the years. And so I, you know where I got my glasses? Ikea. Ah, (laughs) okay. And I've Are they useful? (laughs) Well, then if I break them, I don't feel so bad. I agree. (laughs) But uh, the Bordeaux wine glass tip, that's a good one. I I didn't know that. Yes, yes. I'm going to try that. And so... But there are many brands, okay? So it's basically just the style of the glass. Okay. Do you have a favorite brand? I use... What do I use? Um, Spiegelau actually is my, you know, everyday glassware. And... um, I think they are hardy. <laughs> Is that a word? <laughs> Do they make that wonderful sound when you clink, uh, clink or when you flick your finger on the glass? I think so. I don't make a <laughs> habit of doing that. But, you know, when you, when, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I've just noticed that less expensive glasses don't have that sound. Ding. Yes, yes, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> So let's continue talking about tools. The Court of Master Sommeliers says uh, that there are some required tools for sommeliers. They mentioned you should have two bottle openers on you. I guess what, if one breaks? Yeah, corkscrew. Yeah, of course. I mean, it could it could break. It's happened to me. It happens all the time. So, yes. And do you have a favorite uh, bottle opener that you like to use that people should know about? I'm not very fancy, you know, I, I use just the regular corkscrew. The one where you screw it in you and then the two in, handles? Yes, and then or? it has the two lip, yes, yes. Okay. And then something about two odorless lighters or matches, what's that for? That's for decanting older wines. So as, uh, as a bottle of wine ages, it throws sediment in the bottle. But you're talking about wines that are, you know, 20, 30, 50 year old wines. And that's also one of the reasons why a red wine would lose some of that color, you know, as it ages. So all those um, sediment or drags on the bottom of the glass, you don't want that in the wine, of course, and that's actually one of the uses for decanting. So you need a candle, right? So that you can, as you pour the wine into a decanter, you want the um, candle just below the neck 
of the of the wine of the wine bottle so you can see as you're pouring where you should stop as the dregs start to kind of come into towards oh, the neck wow. so that's uh, that's the use for the the candle wow. now do people lighter. at home have to worry about that I'm afraid I would blow something up. Is there but is no. there a chance of doing that? No, 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 no. <laughs> because alcohol, I mean, it's light. just it's just, but well, it's not touching the alcohol, I right? It. I mean, okay. it's basically lighting the bottle from the bottom, oh, so I that see. you know when ah. to stop pouring. As soon as you see the drags getting close to the top, then you stop pouring. That's pretty fascinating. For those who want to jump into wine but may not know where to start, what do you recommend? I think wine education, like a formal wine education, is always a good initial stop because, you know, it gives you a really like a, a great strong foundation in the understanding of wine so that you know should you decide it's something that you want to pursue you already have the foundation but at the same time it's you know it's it's fun enough it's fun interactive it's casual it's not as in-depth as certainly when you're doing your diploma or master of wine program but it's just a a stronger much more formal way of getting into the wine world and you also offer or tasting groups actually tasting groups also if you have you know a group of friends who like to drink wine it's also good to start a tasting group but with the tasting group if you're all new should you hire someone? I know you host private tasting events. Tell us. I do. I do. That's uh, one part of my business is hosting private events, you know, for clients either in their private homes or workplaces. It's always, so if you're all new, it's always, I think, efficient to hire someone who can just lead the tasting, you know, in, in a more fun, interactive way. Because, I mean, it's like the blind leading the blind, right? Yes, you might have, if you're, in, if you're, you know, new into the business, you might smell the same thing, like look at the same thing. And, and I feel like when you have an expert sort of leading the tasting, you're approaching it in a much more academic way. And then you gain a better understanding and by having a better understanding of the wine that you're drinking, you also in turn get a better understanding of the wines that you actually like. And it's helpful when you walk into a wine shop, when you're able to communicate what it is that you like to drink. And hopefully it translates, right? Otherwise, you know, if you walk in and you go, I like fruity wines, I don't like acid, I don't like tannins, you know, like sometimes it does not really translate. But if you say, oh, I like Malbec, and I like Malbec because, it's an easier translation um, so that someone is actually able to help you effectively in a wine shop. So I would, yes, definitely my, my suggestion or recommendation would be to hire someone <laughs> initially. Yes, it doesn't have to be LA, but she's amazing at what doesn't she does. Have to be me. Yes. <laughs> and she's fun to be around. <laughs> if you're just listening in, we're talking with LA Perkel, a wine expert and sommelier. Please join us as we continue talking about the wonders of wine. So let's just jump back for a moment. We keep hearing in the industry and in the wine shops and online and everywhere, tannins. Mm -hmm. Can you give a very simple explanation of this word and why it's important to those of us 
who are interested in jumping into wine. Okay. So tannins is not really a taste. It's more of a tactile sensation. You feel it in your mouth. It's that drying, pockery sensation. It dries out all the moisture in your palate. And a lot of... Uh, the, the, the typical grape varieties or typical wines that have higher tannins than others are Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah um, and uh, Barolo, Barbarescos, those type of stuff. If you look at them and you're looking at them and they're about three, five years from the harvest, they typically would have super high tannins. And when you drink them, then you experience that puckery drying sensation in your palate. So tannins can be derived two ways. One is from the grape variety itself. So for instance, Cabernet Sauvignon, which has a thicker skin, would have a higher tannin level compared to a Pinot Noir, which has thinner skin. Another way that you can derive tannins is through wood tannins. So again, we go back to barrel aging or barrel fermenting. The newer the barrels, the higher the tannin levels. And so again, when you use, when you have a higher percentage of new oak in a wine, then you tend to have higher tannin levels. Thank you for that. Of course. I hope that was helpful. I know (laughs) it was helpful for me. So as someone who is not a collector or a serious wine buyer, would I call you up and say, oh, LA, I'm looking for something to serve with dinner, or do I go to the wine shop? When do I call you? I think, so I'm basically a mobile wine retailer, right? I'm a wine curator, but the service that I provide when it comes to wine consulting and helping my clients choose and buy wines, it's having, it's almost having a mobile wine shop, right? You can call me, like you said, if you're having a dinner party for 20 people and you say, okay, these are the dishes I want to serve. Can you help me? I can help you. And, and the beauty of what I do when it comes to just on the buying side is that it's, there's no added cost to the client, right? Because my, my fee is essentially covered by the retail partners um, I have. So they pay me commission on the wine that I sell. And so it's no added cost to you, whether you want to walk into a wine shop and pick your own wines or maybe ask for help from the wine expert, resident wine expert in the wine shop, or you want to call me, the service is no different. I think the only added value for having someone like me, of course, of course, besides not paying for my service, is because you're dealing with one person, on every single time that you buy a certain wine, the wine expert, me in this case, yes. has a greater understanding of what wines you typically like. And based on that knowledge, I'm able to then say, okay, are you ready to transition into a similar style, but perhaps different grape variety, perhaps a different producer, perhaps a different growing region. So this sort of, of service allows you to discover new gems that I think, you know, eventually would help elevate your drinking experience because we all are creatures of habits, right? We all have our go-to wines. So if I walk into a wine shop randomly, I'm, you know, an everyday drinker. I like wines, but I don't understand it as much. If I'm faced with a wall of wine selections, invariably, I would pick the same wine that I've had before I know and I know I like or perhaps I would ask for help 
but 90% of the time I'll grab the wine that I've already had before and I've enjoyed in the past. But if you work with me, then I can actually maybe steer you towards other wines that I know stylistically you like, but perhaps something you would not necessarily grab off a wine shelf. I have to say, full disclosure, I have used LA's services <laughs> and I liked wine so much I bought a case of it, which is helpful for both of us because yes. <laughs> and I don't yes. have to keep calling you yes. <laughs> and it lasts forever in my house. So yes, I think that it's really important that people know that it doesn't have to be intimidating to work with a wine consultant. Correct. It's, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy introducing relatively esoteric wines. So a recent wine tasting, for instance, that I hosted was centered around tasting and introducing relatively esoteric wines for summer drinking, right? The idea was that what wines could I drink in my Tuscan villa. That was that that was how they pitched me and I oh, was like, wow. "Oh, totally. I I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Absolutely." When I think when I hear Tuscan, I hear I think of George Clooney. Oh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that was what they wanted, right? I mean, like they drink a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, they drink a lot of Côte de Provence Rosé, and these are all great summer wines. But they wanted to try something new, something different. So we tasted two whites, two rosés, two reds, and a sparkling red. It was fascinating, the uh, the consensus at the end of the night, you know, where they're like, oh my God, I never knew I would drink this wine. I've had what I thought was, say, Beaujolais, for instance, but I always found them to be too tart or too dry or too this, too sweet. But I introduced them to a 2016 Charvet Beaujolais, which is an entry-level Beaujolais that it's probably about $20. So 100% Gamay, but it was absolutely, absolutely amazing, showing amazingly well. So like that was one of the favorites. There was also a rosé from Germany, from a grape in Germany called Spätburgunder, which is actually Pinot Noir elsewhere in the world. <laughs> um, but this was another beautiful selection that, that a lot of people love. But that's not something, it's intimidating. If you walked into a wine shop and you say, what is, right? what is a Spätburgunder? It is actually Pinot Noir. It's the most widely planted red grape variety in Germany. So, but it was, it's not really an esoteric wine, but it's esoteric to this group of people. What does that mean, esoteric wine? It's something, just something different something unique something you wouldn't normally like grab off a shelf right so if you go into a, a wine shop and you want to drink right in the summer i would bet that majority of the people would grab a pinot noir and it's it's a great go-to right in the summer it's light primarily light to medium bodied low tannin levels medium to high acid great red fruit i mean it's great for the summer typically you know 13 13 and a half alcohol level so that's what you want in the summer but at the same time it gets exhausting there's so many wines out there that are just waiting to be discovered so i think you know by working with someone who has a an understanding 
of the different styles of wines um, and also of course an understanding of, of the kind of wines that you like it just again elevates the drinking experience for everybody so true I couldn't have said it any better <laughs> that's why you're here <laughs> so so I have to ask box screw top or cork go oh well um I don't think I've had boxed wine. I don't know. I have yet to see the selections out there. I, I don't usually gravitate <laughs> towards saying, the, uh, the the shelf that contains she the, walks uh, right by the box box, uh, <laughs> box selections. Um, screw top really very useful. I mean, if you're looking for freshness in the wine, you know, like in a lot of Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand, for instance, I mean, what is it that makes that particular Sauvignon Blanc attractive? It's the freshness, it's the beautiful fruit, it's the purity of the flavors. And that, for, for that style of wine, you want a screw top because it actually, it allows that style to be preserved. Um, cork, of course, I drink a lot of wines under cork you need the cork if you want a wine to age well that's just um you know the nature of of the wine you know i never figured out why when you uncork a bottle why is the cork end that was in the bottle then fatter than the end that wasn't in the bottle the top is end the top end fatter? so when you when you pull it out uh, it's fatter. Like really? It, yes. And then, it, so in other words, when you try to then put the cork back in the bottle, it doesn't fit on the side in which was exposed to the wine. Hmm. You ever notice that? That's interesting. I don't pay attention to that because I don't actually <laughs> try to recork. Yeah, so uh-huh. I, do, I don't because I, I don't usually try to recork a bottle with with the same cork, right? <laughs> That's my I problem. Have the, um, <laughs> you oh have my a separate. <laughs> yes. So I have a different closure arrangement you in my f- house. <laughs> <laughs> do you have the uh, vacuum? I have the vacuum. Yes. I have the vacuum. Um, <laughs> that would yes. be why. Yes. Lee is so trying to. <laughs> Not do it the right way. <laughs> so that's what I do. I use the vacuum uh, for sure. <laughs> well, I've purchased those stoppers, the wine stoppers with the lever, mm-hmm. but they break. They crack. So I don't use them. I don't know why people use them because it really doesn't. <laughs> Are you telling me it to go vacuum? Really help. I mean, vacuum, to me, it's helpful. But truly, I mean, when I open a bottle of wine, right, between me and, and Jonathan, Hi, I mean, really, it's, you know, a couple of days worth. There's not much that changes. I mean, it's not the, even the vacuum is not really a long-term solution, right? Because, um, see, I don't go through wine as quickly as others. I have that missing Asian enzyme, so mm-hmm. I don't process it very well. So I can't, I, my body is its own limiter. I can't yeah. drink very much. So a bottle of wine is going to last me a lot longer. Yeah, there you go. So it's not, so even the vacuum is not a long-term solution, right? Because once you open that wine, it starts oxidizing. The moment that you have that surface area in the bottle where oxygen can get in, that's when it starts oxidizing. So even the vacuum is not a long-term solution to preserving wine. But um, there's actually a gadget called Coravan, which is a contraption that has has a super thin needle that allows you to penetrate the foil and the cork, allow a certain amount of wine to come out, right? And so you can taste your wines without exposing the rest of the bottle 
to oxygen. Wow. So you're, you know, you're basically preventing the wine from turning into vinegar through oxidation. So, so let's talk about that. When does a wine turn into vinegar? You know, I mean, if you left it, I don't know the exact time frame, but I think if you left a bottle of wine or, or a glass of wine, for instance, you know, a couple of nights on your kitchen counter in a glass, it could easily turn into a, a vinegary uh, juice. So <laughs> That actually um, happened to me once at a restaurant with some friends. One of the people in my party ordered wine and she, the server came by and let him taste it and he looked at me and he's like, can you taste this for me? And it tasted like vinegar. vinegar. That's the first time I've ever experienced firsthand a wine being sent back. So it's probably a wine by the glass option, yes, right? Yes. And so that bottle probably has it. not been replaced. It's probably been open for over a week or so and, they and just so yes exactly and so uh, yeah. it's probably one of the less popular <laughs> wines by the glass that was really interesting And according to WineInstitute.org, they're saying that in the year 2016, the total amount of wine per resident, this is wine consumption in the U.S., reached levels of 2.94 gallons. How many gallons do you think you consume in a year? I don't know. I'm afraid to actually <laughs> look into it. I mean, I, I certainly drink on a regular basis, um, but... You know, I don't overdrink. I like to have a half a glass if I'm cooking, and then another glass with perhaps dinner. So. And this is based on all types of wines. All types. And using okay. the Bureau of Census resident population. So, uh, if you want more information on that, you can go to wineinstitute.org. But I thought that was interesting. I was like, hmm, do I drink about three gallons of wine in a year? Probably. 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 Right? Because if you, I mean, look. Even and if cooking you just it drink, too, right? Exactly. Well, there you go. Yes, that's also wine consumption, yes. right? Yes, you don't absolutely. have to just drink it by yes, the glass. Yes, absolutely. And or in your case, right, dropping a <laughs> right, bottle. Exactly. <laughs> right. Does that count? That, that counts as, you know, ah, Central Park wine right? consumption. <laughs> Which you're not supposed to do, folks. <laughs> I covered the label. <laughs> It was in a bag. Oh, goodness. So what is one of your favorite dishes to add a wine to? And what is the wine and what is the dish? I guess beef bourguignon. And I like to use um, Cote de Rhone typically. So it's a Syrah Grenache blend from the Rhone Valley in France. That's, uh, you know, when I, when, I, when I cook with Cote de Rhone, I typically would drink a Rhone wine as well. Not necessarily Cote de Rhone, but it's, you know, from the same region. Exactly. LA, is there anything else that we need to touch upon that you've thought of that we haven't mentioned that you think folks would be interested in knowing about? Not necessarily something we haven't touched upon, but I think if there is one takeaway from this whole interview is drink more wine. <laughs> Responsibly. <laughs> Contribute to the higher consumption. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Lee. <laughs> thank you. So how would you like people to reach out to you if they want to connect with you further? Email is always best. It's laperkel at gmail.com. So L-A, 
P-E-R-K-E-L at gmail.com. And if you want to check out my Instagram, my handle is at L-A's file. And I'll be sure to put L-A's contact information in the show notes. You can go to houseofleenyc.com for more information. L-A, thank you so much for taking the time out to go for a stroll in Central Park and talk to us about wine. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Lee. After our interview was over, I got to thinking that maybe I should clarify what is entailed with working with a wine consultant. As L.A. mentioned, buying wine from a private curator costs nothing more than the wine itself because the commission is generally built into the cost of the wine. However, if you want to host a private wine tasting or other wine event in celebration of something and you'd like a sommelier to conduct and guide your attendees, then of course there is a service fee and that is in addition to any wine costs or other event production fees such as rent. You know, all in all though, it's a fabulous party idea for the upcoming holiday season. In other news... I need to share that because of last week's show in which I touted the joys of the Boathouse Express Cafe in Central Park, I had lunch there with Sue. You may remember her from episode six, actually. Well, I just need to say that I'm so disappointed to report that the roast beef au jus that I raved about is no longer on the menu. I did, however, see steak tacos with corn tortillas, though. An order of three costs $12, so maybe I'll try those one day. But anyway, if you go, email Call me. Let me know. Post a picture on Instagram and tag at House of Lee NYC. Today's shout outs go to Josie C from the Philippines. Hey! And Alexa's Wine Diary and Stefano Di Tata. And I'm so excited to announce that registration is now open for Cast Shop NYC on October 25th. It's a one-day, hands-on podcasting workshop. We like to say that it's inspired action to podcast creation. I am co-hosting it with Kelly from What Kelly Thinks and Beatrice from Lost at Home. Speakers slated so far to appear are podcast production editor Jennifer Longworth and podcast host host and producer Monica Rivera from You Want to Do What? It's going to be so much fun. We're going to help you get started. There'll be a light lunch. There'll be coffee, all for just $95 for the full day. You can visit houseofleenyc.com to register. Prices will go up, but you do have some time until that happens. So again, you can register at houseofleenyc.com. And I'm so excited that we're bringing that to you. We feel that the cost or the barrier to entry into podcasting should be low so that you can get started and then you can also just pay it forward later on so that's what we're doing we're paying it forward come join us october 25th on the upper west side in new york city go to houseofleenyc.com to register it's going to be so much fun so that wraps up this episode of the house of lee nyc thank you so much for stopping by take care and i'll talk to you soon bye-bye